Okay. Okay. Uh, good morning to everyone. Um, if you um, could take, make sure that you have copies of the two sheets that were given out at the en- entrance. Yeah. Thank you very much. I have enough. Yes. Uh, yeah. If everyone could please make sure that you have copies of the two sheets, that would be helpful. There should be a sheet that has Tanakh on both sides. There should be a sheet that has Tanakh on both sides and a sheet that has non-Tanakh on both sides. Um, anyone not have either of the sheets, please come up and get them now. Okay. Here you need a set. Thank for you. you. Anyone else lacking a set of sheets? Just have two sheets. One with Tanakh, one with, on both sides, one with other things on both sides. Okay. All right. Is that for you? Thank you. Okay. Um, our issue today is the image of Tzidkiel, the last king of Yehuda. Um, Tzidkiel, as you... And we're going to be dealing with Sefer Yirmiyahu, um, learning some material from Yirmiyahu, looking at the extra biblical... At the, at the parallels Yirmiyahu makes to other places in Tanakh. Um, and also looking at um, extra-biblical texts, texts written at the time that are not included in tonight. The most, the topic for today's overall uh, event is, tra- is controversial figures in Tanakh, and Sidkiah at first blush appears to be a rather non-controversial figure. He is the last king of Yehuda in most standard reckonings. In other words, if you look in the standard list of kings of Yehuda, you'll see Sidkiah there. Um, this obviously legitimates him as a king of Yehuda, the standard lists. But there's a certain question. Is he a legitimate king of Yehuda? Why would someone question whether Tzidkiyahu is a legitimate king of Yehuda? That answer is already given in the very first psukim of the chapter that you have in front of you, in Yemiyahu Lamed And it's also implicit in the history of the period. Why would you question whether Tzidkiyahu is a legitimate king? Someone who has some background in Yemiyahu? Yes, Scott? Right, he's appointed by the Babylonian king. He's clearly not a, a someone who su- succeeds in the normal dynastic order. What other event happens before immediately before Tzidkiah ascends the throne? Right, the exile of 597. Tzidkiah succeeds to the throne in 597 BCE. Immediately before Tzidkiah's ascension, there is an exile to uh, Babel of the leading elements in the kingdom of Yehuda. The, what's called in, in, uh, in biblical history, Galur, in Tanakh itself, Galut Hecharash Vehamasger, the exile of the smith and of the iron workers. Uh, the most important elements of the population have been exiled in 597 by the Babylonians in order to install a more compliant regime in Yehuda, to install a king who will be um, more, more docile, more submissive to the Babylonians. And so Tzidkiah was in many, many ways a client king. Um, who succeeds Tzidkiah? I'm sorry, if some of the gentlemen could give seats to the ladies that no, might be um, more <laughs> chivalrous. And, excuse me, can you please take sheets? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. excellent. Okay. Um, the younger gentlemen could give seats, to, give seats to the ladies that would be appropriate. Um, People could take seats. If everyone has sheets. Okay, you can still you can stay here. Okay. Anyone not have sheets? 
Thank you. Could you, could someone please pass back? I think we need to, uh, to close the shop here. I think we're, we're about to, uh, about to be pretty full. Simeon, I'm happy to do a repeat at, at, at six o'clock. Okay. I think we need. To, I do need to think we need to uh, to close off. Okay. Does anyone not have a pair of sheets? Uh, I'm about to run out. No, I have more. There you are. Okay. Should have, everyone should have two sh- two sheets. One sheet that has Tanakh sources and one sheet that has non-Tanakh sources. Okay. Fine. So we discussed that Kiel, last king of Yehuda, ascends the throne 597, appointed by the Babylonians. For that reason, there's some doubt as to his legitimacy as a king. He's, after all, appointed by the Babylonians. Immediately after the preceding king, Yehoniah has been exiled to Babel. Yehoniah, the previous king, is alive and well and kicking in Babel, and that contributes to the doubt as to whether Tzidkiah was legitimate, because after all, the previous king is alive and in exile. So there is a certain segment of the population that continues to maintain loyalty to the, to the king across the king in Babel. That is, Yehoniah, the previous king of Yehuda, who's now been exiled. Meantime, Tzidkiah is on the throne in Yerushalayim. He's been appointed by the Babylonians, and there are questions as to his legitimacy as a king. And why... Um, when looks at it in the sense of the large scope of history, why else would you question Tzidkiah's uh, status as a king? Who comes after Tzidkiah, who's not considered a king? Who is the leader of Yudah after Tzidkiah? Gedaliah and Gedaliah we don't consider. And what is the real difference between Tzidkiah and Gedaliah? After all, they're both appointed by the Babylonians. Right, Tzidkiah is from Beit David. Right, and that seems to be the major difference, that Tzidkiah is appointed from Beit David. Everyone should please take from here um, two sheets um, of differing, with, with different texts on them. Okay, ha- I'm sorry, those are a little bit messed up. You have to sort them out among yourselves. All right. That is the sort of basic background in which we find ourselves. But if we look at Yumiao Perak Zayin, the chapter begins with the only episode that we really have about Sidkiyahu in Tanakh. And it's a very lengthy episode describing the question of another level of, of legitimacy of a king. What legitimates a king in Sefer Melachim? What is the ultimate test of legitimacy of a king in Sefer Melachim? Not just descent from Beit David, but also the king is good or not good. What is the... I'm sorry, the handles have gone on. I'm sorry? But the, the question in Sefer Melachim usually is whether the king has obeyed God or has disobeyed God. And in Sefer Yirmiyahu, the question of Tzidkiyahu's obedience to God comes front and center in Perak Zayin. So let's now open Perak Zayin. You have it in front of you, and I'm sorry the sheets are only in Hebrew. Uh, we'll try and explain for those who are a little weak. Let's try and look at Perak Zayin at the beginning of the Perak, um, the narrative in uh, Yirmiyahu Zayin. So, Vayimloch Melech Tzidkiyahu ben Yoshiyahu Tachat Knayahu ben Yoyakim Asher Imlich Yudnuchanetzer Melech Babel Be'eretz Yehuda so Tzidkiah was appointed as a client king. And what are we told about Tzidkiah in the very second pasuk of this narrative? 
What are we told about him? But he is disobedient, right? So he is he's disobedient to whom? He along with his court, uh, I think we're pretty full. Uh, he along with his court are disobeying are disobedient to Yirmiyahu. Despite the fact that he is disobedient to Yirmiyahu, what does he do in Pasuk Gimel? What is Sikyahu's first? Uh, what are we? What is Sikyahu's first action here in this narrative? Look at Pasuk Gimel, please. What does he ask of Yirmiyahu? Right, pray for us because we are at this point the Babylonians have returned and are once again threatening to exile Judah. Yes, please. Um, again, if the if, if there are any young gentlemen who still have seats, if they could give, see them to the ladies, if the older people, that would be appreciated. Uh, the, again, the narrative of Tzikiyahu is that he, he, on the one hand, is disobedient to Yirmiyahu, on the other hand, asks Yirmiyahu to pray for him. So we see already someone who is, on the one hand, resistant to the advice of the Navi, on the other hand, respectful of the role that the Navi plays. Okay, there, are two, there are two sheets, and they are... Uh, you need to find them in this this packet. No, you need to find them in this packet. There are two sheets. These are slightly messed up. I, I, I'm sure there's a reference point somewhere in comedy for what's going on, but I'm not sure what it is. Yes, there, there are. Okay, I, I don't think it will be productive to send more people into this room. With all due respect, I'm happy to repeat this class tonight at six o'clock in this room. Um, there are two sheets. There are, no, please do not take my sheets, because I need a sheet to give it to you. I'm sorry. Um, right, please do try to take two sheets from in here. I, I'm sorry that I... Just right, take... The sheets here have once have... Please just give out, if you don't mind, one sheet to everyone who just walked in. Okay, this young lady in the green has agreed to give out one sheet to everyone who just walked in. Please take those sheets and please find a seat to the extent that you can. Well, I, I really would like to. Okay, it's not going to I appreciate the problem, but I, I'm not sure how to solve it. Okay, uh, if, everyone, if everyone could please quiet down. Uh, I'm going to continue from where I left off, um, and I'll try and be quick and to the point so that those who are standing... Um, don't have to suffer too much. Alright. I'm sorry, I have no more copies of any of the pages. Uh, I did not... Uh, okay, this is, this is my fault and not those of the organizers. They told me to prepare 65 copies and I thought they were being ridiculous. So... Uh, okay, let's, but let, let's please go on. Sidkiyaho is the last king of Yehuda, for those who just walked in. He appears at first at outset in the beginning of Yirmiyahu, chapter 37, which you have in front of you, to be disobedient to Jeremiah, to Yirmiyahu. Um, he then appears to be somewhat more obedient in the sense that he sends emissaries to ask Yirmiyahu to pray for him because the city of, of Yerushalayim is in siege. Yirmiyahu's instructions are detailed in um, Pasuk Zayin. This is the Jeremiah's proclamation to Tzidkiyahu. Paro, who is leaving Mitzrayim to come help you, will not help you. The Babylonians will be able to oppose Paro. 
Paro will not be available to help you. The Babylonians will take Yerushalayim, Sidkiah was told. Veshavu HaKasdim, the Babylonians, they're called Kasdim here, Pasuk 8. Veshavu HaKasdim, v'nilchamu ala irazot, the Babylonians will fight against the city and capture it. Ulchaduha usrafuha ba'esh, they will capture it and burn it in fire. So the Yirmiyahu gives a prophecy of doom against the city. Ko amar Hashem, al tasiyum nafshotechem lemor, do not lift up your eyes thinking that the do not let your eyes let your souls be deceived saying the Babylonians will go up from upon us they will not go up from upon us and Pasuk 10 is a particularly poignant um, prophecy even if all the Babylonians um, who are fighting against you go away and only a few uh, injured people remain, they will come and defeat you. You have no hope. It is not uh, within your power to oppose the Babylonians. Even if you defeat them by natural <coughs> means, they will defeat you by supernatural means. Essentially, Yermiyahu is delivering to Tzidkiah a prophecy that who is opposing the city of Jerusalem, who is fighting against Jerusalem here, Right, not just the Babylonians, but it is God who is fighting against the against Jerusalem. The idea of God fighting against Jerusalem is as shocking to Tzidkiah as it might be to us, and therefore forms a central part of our kinos on Tisha B'Av. If you look at the um, box on the beginning of page one, you will see I've given you in a box there the beginning of the second chapter of Echa. And you have here, the, the beginning of Eicha opens with the question of how is it that Jerusalem is alone when it was once such a, pop, such a popular city. The second parak of Eicha doesn't deal with the issue of the, of the current status of Yerushalayim. It rather deals with the question of God's relationship to Yerushalayim. And it asks the question, how has God become our enemy? And Sitkiah is now trying to digest this issue of how has God become our enemy. How is it that God is opposing Yerushalayim? How is it that I, who have been seem to be appointed, seem to have been appointed to save Jerusalem from the fate of exile, am go, must submit to the Babylonians and again suffer exile? Sidkiyahu does not willingly submit. Sidkiyahu opposes Yirmiyahu's advice, which is to 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 surrender to the Babylonians. Sidkiyahu makes all possible effort to keep Jerusalem standing, to keep Jerusalem opposed to the Babylonians. And it's to some extent easy to understand it because he does believe, well, if I... God must be able to help Jerusalem. He doesn't accept the idea that God is fighting against Yerushalayim. He does not accept the prophet's words. To some extent, Sikkiel comes here, off here, as a disobedient figure, someone who refuses to obey the prophet. But I think there's a little bit more to Sikkiel than that idea of someone who simply disobeys the prophet. Because it is, after all, very difficult to swallow the idea that God is fighting against Jerusalem, that there is absolutely no possibility of Jerusalem uh, surviving the Babylonian siege, and that Jerusalem's fate is decreed from before the battle is joined. And that essentially is the point of view that Sitkiah seems to take here. I can oppose the Babylonians, I can fight, we do have possibilities, let's try to maneuver. Essentially, he denies the authenticity of Yirmiyahu's word as, uh, of Yirmiyahu's words, as coming from God. He denies Yirmiyahu, he says, we will fight on. If we look only at Sefer Yirmiyahu, to some extent, Sitkiah really emerges as a petulant child who refuses to obey the prophet. But I want to engage a slightly broader view of Sitkiah by looking not only at what goes on in Sefer Yirmiyahu, Perak 37 at the beginning, 
but also at material from outside Tanakh that gives us a somewhat broader perspective on Tzidkiyahu. And those are the, sh- the that's the material that's presented on the second sheet. For those of you who came in early, there's a sheet that says Lachish 6, Lachish 4, Lachish 3. Uh, for those of you who came in late, there is one edition, of, one, tech, one copy of one of the Lachish letters on the back. Okay, on the back, yes. For those of you who came in late, there's one copy of one of the Lachish letters on the back of the sheet. Um, and you're missing the Lachish 3 and 4, which I will discuss extemporaneously. Sorry, Lachish 6 and 4, which I'll discuss extemporaneously. Let me explain a little bit what these letters are. The Lachish letters, as probably many of you know, are letters that were written during the time of this final battle of Yehuda against the Babylonians. They are army documents that record the orders from the middle echelon of officers to the lower echelon of officers. They do not actually come from Yerushalayim. They are found at a site called Lachish, which was the second largest uh, city in Yehuda, second most important military fortress in Yehuda at the time of the battle um, against the Babylonians. The city of Lachish is located roughly halfway between Yerushalayim and Aza, on a direct line between Yerushalayim and Aza. Uh, the mound is still there today. You can see it and visit it. It's been exposed. Uh, it is the s- historic site of great resistance to enemies in earlier periods. Who remembers what comes, what happens in Lachish earlier? Remember the earlier history of Lachish? Right, Sancheri fights against the Jews there. Lachish falls. Sancheri is very proud of the fact that he's conquered Lachish. And yet Yerushalayim stands. So Yerushalayim stands even after the fall of Lachish. And Lachish is thus connected to the idea of heroic resistance against enemies in uh, in history of Judah in the First Temple period. And it's at this site that we have documents that give us a lot of perspective on what's going on in this final battle of Tzidkiyahu. Um, these documents were found in the gatehouse at Lachish. They're found in the, they were buried in the gate. Uh, um, and they are under a level of destruction. So clearly, immediately after these documents were buried, the city was burned by the Babylonians and destroyed. The documents have recently been shown by Benny Begin, who was in the headlines this morning, if you read Haaretz. Uh, Benny Begin did an important research study on these documents, and he showed that these documents were actually sent from a site not far from Lachish, from a site called Maresha. Maresha is very close to Lachish. It's slightly farther north. Um, it is known in later times as Beit Guvrin. It is the hometown of the prophet Micha, probably. Um, and it is also an important site, but not as important a site as Lachish. And so the lower level commander at um, Maresha, so we'll talk, call him the lower commander, we'll call him the sergeant. He is called Hoshayahu, and he is riding from Maresha to a higher commander, let's call him a lieutenant for purposes of discussion, uh, named Yaush, who is located at Lachish. And these are the records of the correspondence. We only have one side of the correspondence. We have the correspondence from the Maresha guy to the Lachish guy. Here are the records. Um, as discovered in the 20s by uh, a British expedition. And they're on display today at the Rockefeller Museum in, in, in East Jerusalem. Look now, please, at uh, Lachish letter 6. The, the numbers are inconsequential. The numbers are just the order in which the archaeologists pulled them up out of the ground. They do not record the um, order of the letters in terms of in any chronology, 
But I think that these letters are illustrative of the situation in Yehuda at this time, and of the situation particularly in the army. So, letter number six. So he's writing to Yahush. El Adoni Yahush. Yireh Hashem et Adoni et ha'etazeh shalom. So all these letters open up with this greeting, May God show you peace. May God show you uh, peace. And some of them even begin with the greeting, May God show you good tidings. And they become increasingly more and more and more urgent and uh, stressed in their opening lines. The logic is obvious here. Yehuda is under serious attack. He begins with the following statement, and I think this is fascinating because it, dis- dis- it, it exposes something about the nature of the military at this time. Mi avdecha kerlev ki shalach adoni et sefer hamelech bet sifrei hasarim lemor krana. So who am I, a dog, that you have sent to me letters from the king and letters from the king's officers saying, read these. Now listen to what he's saying here. V'inei divrei hasarim lo tovim l'rapot yadecha u'lahashkit yadei ha'anashim and then the last of the line is broken but it starts with yada and it probably reads, and I'm giving a guess here, yod'ei milchama. So the words of the officers are not good because they cause weakness of hands and they cause paralysis among the people who know war. So what type of letters is this guy, Yaush, getting from the king and the officers, at least from the officers of the king? What type of letters is he getting? Letters of doom, letters that are in some way negative, letters that imply that the option of surrender should not be taken off the table. Letters that imply that it is going to be difficult to fight this war. These letters have the effect of weakening hands. Le rapot yadayim. That's a completion, but many of the letters are in fact there. So how can you, many of the letters, I mean, are still there. So the mikhtavim, these letters, are, seem, to, seem to be, or the sfarim, as the, as the text goes here, seem to be weakening the hands of those who are supporting the opposition to the Babylonians. And he goes on, he says, Adoni, halotikhtov alehem lemor, and I'm in line eight now. Adoni, halotikhtov alehem lemor, lamatasu kazot. And then he doesn't have, then the text is broken. Why don't you write back to them opposing? And so what do you see here that the army officer, Yehush at Lachish, sorry, Hoshayat Marishah is, is, is expressing, what point of view is he expressing? Let's fight, right. He is expressing the point of view of let's continue this battle. And if you look at line 12, you have, Chai Hashem Elokecha, Ki Me'azkara Avdecha Atasfarim, Lo Hayale Avdecha something. So it's, the, the line there is broken at the end. Um, once, since I've read these letters, I'm in trouble, I'm distressed. Um, these letters are not good. Why don't you respond to them and say, we will continue the battle. Thank you. Now, Let's look at Lachish number four. And Lachish number four, in logical order, seems to come after Lachish number six, although the chronology is here very, very unclear. Okay, I'm just saying in logical order, Lachish six seems to Lachish four seems to come after six. All right. Yashma Hashem et Adoni atakayom shmuatov. May God cause you to hear good tidings, which seems a little bit more urgent than the opening of Lachish six. I mean, not only may God, we're not hoping for peace now, but at least may you have good things, may you hear good things. Ve'ata. And by the way, this is an interesting usage of the word ve'ata. 
and which is consistent with its usage in Tanakh. The word ve'ata consistently moves the not the speech. It's always used in the speech, and it always moves the speech from the introduction to the body. If you look at how ve'ata is used in Sefer Dvarim, how it's used in Sefer Shmuel, all the way through Tanakh, ve'ata consistently is used to move from the introduction to the body of the speech. Ve'ata Yisrael Shmuel Achukim in Sefer Dvarim, and so on. So this is just an interesting linguistic point. But let's now look at Lachish 4 in terms of its substance. Ve'ata. What is Yaush expressing? What is Hoshaya expressing to his, uh, his senior officer uh, Yaush here? Well, I, I have followed your orders. For those of you who I apologize, I'm somewhat lacking in in copies here. Uh, yes, these these these, these she, this actually this does happen. Yeah, please grab it. So I followed your orders. Um, and that is a somewhat difficult sentence. Does anyone have any suggestions of what it means? I posted the news, perhaps. The other option is to understand the word delet here as a column of parchment. It's used in that sense in Yermiao Paraklamet Vav, and it may here refer to a column of parchment. I have written on the column of parchment everything you have said to me. Uh, but it's very, that sentence is very difficult. Let's leave it out and let's move, move on. So you have sent me orders regarding a place called Beit Harapad, and we have no idea where Beit Harapad is, but it appears to be some location in the general area around uh, Maresha. So if you sent me about Beit Harapad, there is no one there. And it be, and it becomes more and more clear about what is it that he that he's been ordered to do at Beit Harapad. There is no one there. He sent me to do something at Beit Harapad, and there's no one there. Usmach Yahu, everyone with me now? In line, the line that starts with the word Dalad Mem. Usmach Yahu, lekachosh ma'ayahu vayalehu ira. So if you think that this guy Smach Yahu was there, what's happened to Smach Yahu? Shmaya was taking him back to Ha'ira, the city probably either Lachish or more probably Yerushalayim. So uh, we don't know who this guy Shmachyahu is, we don't know who this guy Shmaiyahu is. But these guys have, but there is no one there anymore at Beit HaRapad, which you're concerned about. Shmachyahu has been taken away. Va'avdecha eneni sholeach shama od, oto od, ki im bitsubat haboker. So when do I when do I when do I get to send people to uh, Beit Harapad? Tomorrow. What anyone know what the word Tsuba means? Right. So the word Tsuba is Hefax. It doesn't appear anywhere in Tanakh, but based on its um, form, it's a, it's a, it's the same form as Tinua or Tinufa, um, and the Shoresh is Samech Bet Bet. What might it mean? <coughs> But the turning around, or the, the same sense that the word Savav has in Sefer Shmuel, when it talks about Shmuel going from city to city, a movement from city to city. What does one call that in army parlance? When you move, when you when you go from one fort to the next, and you go around and around in a circle from from point to point, from defense post to defense post. Patrol. Right. This is called the patrol. Right. Unfortunately, Tzal has used the, used the words lefatrel instead of lasotisuba. Uh, one of someone has time on their hands, they can sort of start a campaign for the revival of the word tesuba instead of patrol. Uh, but the idea of a patrol, um, as the army uses it, is that if you don't have the personnel 
to staff a certain number of posts, then you abandon them and you do a patrol to try and keep the enemy out of those posts. And he's here using that technique because he doesn't have personnel to staff Ben Harapad. He's instead doing a patrol there. This indicates the increasingly low level of manpower that is at Hoshayahu's disposal. He doesn't have the manpower anymore. He's moved to a system of patrols. And he goes on and says, V'yeda, ki ha-masuot lachish nachnu shomrim, kechol ha-otot asher natan adoni, ki lo nir'et azeka. For whatever reason, and it's not clear if this is because azeka has already been defeated or because of line of sight, Benny Begin thinks the latter, uh, he can no longer rely on signs from azeka. And what does he intend, what does he instead use? He uses the masuot of lachish. What are masuot of lachish? Right, the signifiers of Lachish. But this is the signifier, famous signifiers of Lachish are taken from this this letter. Um, he says, I do not, I do not, I cannot see Azeka anymore. I am relying on the signals that you're sending me in accordance with the letters that you that you are indicating. So he begins with expressing loyalty to his commander at Lachish. He ends with expressing loyalty to his commander at Lachish. He says, first, I did what you commanded me. He ends by saying, I am following your signifiers, but what can't I do? <coughs> I can't hold ground. I can't hold Bed Harapad. I can only hold it with patrols. I don't have personnel anymore. And this idea becomes even increasingly urgent and stressed in Lachish Letter 3, which I think everyone has. Even if you didn't have the whole handout, you have the handout Lachish Letter 3. Avdecha Hoshayahu shalach lehagid l'adoni yaush. Yashma Hashem et adoni shmuot shalom ushmuot tov. Here, an even more urgent um request an even more urgent plea which opens the letter. Now, what is the, before we read the letter, there is a tendency among people when they get stressed uh, to begin to become accusatory. Um, and that seems to be what's going on here by Hoshayahu. Let's look at Lachish 6 and you'll see what I mean. So please What's the strange about that phrase? You know your biblical Hebrew well. You know your biblical well. What does pokeach mean? Pokeach eyes. So open the eyes of your open the eyes of your servants' ears is a strange metaphor, but it seems to have to do with the idea that I don't understand what you've sent me. I see the text that you sent me, but it doesn't make any sense. The eye is the idea of seeing. The ear is the idea of understanding or hearing. I don't understand what you've sent me. So open my open my ear eyes, open my eye ears, or something like that, um, to the text that you sent me yesterday, to the message that you sent me last night. I am upset since you sent it to me. If you are going to say to me, that, don't you know how to read a message? Chayadoni, he says, excuse me, he doesn't say Chayadoni, he swears by, by the name of God. He says, Chayashem, and notice the writing. Chayashem without the middle Yud, which indicates that the writer is writing sort of phonetically. It's like writing the word through in English, T-H-R-U. So he is writing Chayashem, Chet Yud, Hey Vav, and then a Hey. Uh, he's not, he's writing phonetically, he's someone who's writing an abbreviated form, um, and certainly writing quickly. 
If anyone ever had to read me a book, no one ever needs to read me a, a text. Because why? Because I can, I can read. Furthermore, v'gam kol sefer asher no book that comes to me. And then here, I think we have to understand the word im as uh, as the ne- im of the negative oath. Right? Im is using Tanakh to indicate a negative swearing. I swear that the following is not the case. And here, im karati otove od etenenu el meuma. Those words are difficult. But um, I think that we can show that, these, that they mean, I swear that I never read it and then considered it to be nothing. Etnenhu el meuma is like asimehu el meuma. I never <coughs> took a text and considered it to be a nothing text, he says. So I, I, I pay attention to your text, he's saying here. I read your texts, I consider them important. But what's going on? And now you have in line 13 a little bit more of a t- an explanation of what's going on. And we want to get to your Miyahu in a second here. So you, we've, I've been told saying that the officer of the army, Knayahu ben El Natan, has gone down to uh, Mitzrayim and he's taken someone from here. He's taken Hodayahu ben Achiyahu and his people from here. So what are the army officers doing at this point? What are the sub- They're retreating down to Egypt. Um, what are the, what's the logic of retreating to Egypt? Two possibilities. To call the allied help or to get out of the way. Right, and the, in the, in the, with the understanding that in Egypt at least they'll find refuge. Um, it is entirely possible that they give one as the excuse, we're going down to find, to find help, but the reality is that they are also trying to save their own skins. Um, in any case, they're not there to fight. And it seems from the fact that there's a group of them going that they're at least um, interested in getting as many people into Egypt as possible because if they were just going to he- get help, a small group might be sufficient. And we see here that Knayahu ben El Natan has gone down to Egypt and he's taken with him Hodayahu ben Achiyahu. We do not know who any of these people are, but we are getting a picture of general abandonment and general... Um, chaos that seems to be the order of the day against the um, intent of Yahush here, uh, sorry, against the intent of Yahu here to hold as much ground as possible. He's saying, I'm doing everything I can, I'm sending patrols, I'm covering the ground as much as I can, I'm obeying your orders, and yet I have no manpower. Essentially is the, la- is, is the, the summary of what we've read until now in these letters. The last line here is really fascinating. The se- uh, line nine, I'm in line 19 now. The end of Lachish 3. The Sefer Toviyahu Eved HaMelech Haba'el Shalom Ben Yadua Me'et HaNavi So this is a little complicated, but it's a message from Toviyahu, someone who's in the king's palace. Toviyahu, a servant of the king, which has come to Shalom Ben Yadua. From whom is this letter coming? From the Navi. Now we don't know which Navi this is, but I'll show you why I think this is Yemiyahu's letter. Yemiyahu, the Navi, is sending a letter, and what does the letter say? One word. Hishamer. Anyone know what the word Hishamer means? Be guarded. In what other text do we find the word Hishamer used in a military context? Anyone remember? Someone took Yishaya with me. Right, right. It's in the Maftir for for Yisrael, and Yishayahu is using it in Parak 7 um, to indicate, um, take a defensive posture. Do Do not try to fight the battle. Do not uh, take a, a, a more uh, neutral posture in a battle that's shaping up. 
between Aram Yisrael on the one hand and Ashur on the other hand, taking a neutral posture. And the Navi is sending a letter here which says, Hishamer. That letter which has reached Yahush at Lachish, he said, sorry, which is Rito Shayat Marishai, says, I've sent it to Yahush at Lachish. I'm passing on this letter. But he is surrounded by a, a certain uh, demanding, he's surrounded by a series of demands to surrender. People are going down to Egypt. He doesn't have personnel. He's getting letters from the Sarim, and now he's gotten a letter from the Navi also, all of which are encouraging him to surrender. And here you have Hoshayahu at Maresha saying, I'm continuing on my orders. I'm doing my patrols. I'm obeying the signal fires. I'm listening to your letter, the instructions from Lachish. I'm continuing to fight the battle. I think that even an objective observer who looks at this dispassionately would conclude that there's a certain measure of bravery and of stick to itness in Hoshayahu in the sense that he's a loyal soldier who's continuing to, to stand up to all types of adversity and fight the battle no matter what happens. And that type of stick of steadfastness, of uh, heroism, is something that in every war uh, a military must admire. That gives us, I think, a sense of perspective on what's going on with Tzidkiyahu in Yerushalayim. Because Tzidkiyahu, to some extent, is adopting the very same approach that Hoshayahu at Maresha is adopting. We will continue the battle, we will continue to fight, we will remain steadfast, we will not surrender. Um, it's almost Churchillian in its, uh, in its sort of epic heroism here. And yet Tanakh makes the point that it doesn't portray Tzidkiyahu as anything approaching a hero. And I think the answer to that question of does Tzitkiel get anything of a hero's portrayal is very interesting as we go through the rest of the text. There is one indication in the very final passage which does indicate the status of a hero for Tzitkiel, albeit a um, tragic one. Uh, let's look at the opening passage in uh, in Perek Lamed so Perek Lamed begins with, it's on the, on the bottom of the first sheet. Perek Lamed, I have till 12 or 12.15? 12 12.15, okay. So look at the beginning of Perek Lamed Chet. Vaishmash Ben, the whole bunch of officers. <coughs> By the way, Perek Lamed Chet Pasuk Aleph has recently been in the news. Anyone remember why? The seal. The seal of one of these people has been found. I believe it's the seal of uh, Yuchal Ben Shlemiyahu, which was recently found. Uh, this is in, the, in, in Elat Mazar's digs in, uh, in Ir David. So what does, um, what does, what do these officers say? They hear Yomiyahu saying, Pasuk Bet, Ko Amar Hashem HaYoshev Ba'ir Hazot Yamut Bacherev Uvabara'u Vavadaver. Those who stay in the city will die, Yomiyahu says, by, so- by sword, by hunger, and by pestilence. Those who go out and surrender to the Babylonians, what will be his booty in this war? What will be what he remains in his hands? His soul. In other words, he will, he will stay alive. You're going to die if you remain in the city. You're going to survive if you surrender. Furthermore, Pasugimel, the city is going to be given into the hands of the king of Babel. What did the Sarim demand, Yumiyahu? Pasuk Dalet? Right, let, let us kill, let, let, let Yumiyahu be killed. 
which is not so um, unusual if you think about the effect that it's having on this guy Hoshayahu. Hoshayahu is saying, I want to defend, I want to defend, I want to defend, and here these letters are arriving saying surrender, and he is attempting to, and, he, and the officers here are accusing Yirmiyahu of sedition. We know, that there are, we know that there are officers who take the point of view that there should be a surrender. We know that from Lachish letter four, letter 4, which we read at the outset, but here, at least, the officers are taking a more militant position. And Tzirkiyahu really does emerge tragically here, because if you look at um, the continuation, if you look at the continuation of Perek Lamed Chet, on the opposite side of the sheet, and I hope most of you have it, in Pasuk Yud Zayin, <coughs> which I bolded, Yirmiyahu responds to Tzirkiyahu and says, Tzirkiyahu goes and hides and asks, Yirmiyahu, please tell me the, the truth of what's going to happen. And Yirmiyahu answers Tzidkiyahu in Pasuk Yudzayin with the very same message that he's been accused of, of conveying. Um, if you want to survive, you have to surrender. You will live if you surrender, but if you um, remain in the city, the city is going to be given at the hands of the king of Avel and it's going to be burnt in fire and you will not survive. And the tragic nature of Tzitkiyahu was really revealed in Pasuk Yutet. What is Tzitkiyahu, what emerges in Pasuk Yutet? Why does Tzitkiyahu say, I'm not going to surrender? He says, I cannot really um, engage in surrender. Why? Because the, not because I myself oppose surrender, but because there are already Jews who have surrendered to the Babylonians if the, ba- I give the, if the Babylonians give me, in, if I surrender the Babylonians, the Babylonians are going to give me into the hands of those Jews, and the Jews will torture me. So you see here the image of a king who has really totally lost control. He has no control over his officers, as we see from the fact that his officers imprisoned Yirmiyahu earlier. And the king says, I can't do anything about it. The king is now saying, I am, going to be, I, I am scared of becoming ridiculous. I don't want to be handed over and tortured by my own people who have already surrendered. Um, who will accuse me of having needlessly prolonged the conflict and needlessly brought the city into a longer um, continuous war. So Tzitkiah was saying, my, I, I feel my options are closed. I do not have the option of surrender anymore. Now, of course, what emerges in, in this is Yirmiyahu tries to convince Tzitkiah, please surrender, please surrender. Tzitkiah refuses steadfastly to surrender. But he's not here, he's not refusing to surrender out of bravery, he's refusing to surrender to a certain extent out of cowardice. He knows it's the right thing to do, but he refuses to do it because he's fearful of becoming ridiculous. Now, the last psukim of Tzidkiyahu's life are in Perek Lametet, and I bolded them on the sheet. And if you look at them, you'll see a very fascinating portrayal of Tzidkiyahu's last days or last moments. A portrayal which really seems very much appropriate for a tragic figure. But there is a certain heroic element, I think, hiding in it. If we look at Perak Lamatet, Sukim Vav, and Zayin, what happens to Tzidkiyahu? Tzidkiyahu, of course, attempts to escape the city in Pasuke. He runs away. He, he escapes from the city as a tragic coward would do, not as a tragic hero would do. And yet there's a certain element of heroism, I think, in the portrayal in Pasuk, hiding in the portrayal in Pasuk Vav Zayin. What, is the, what happens to him in Pasukim Vav Zayin? He he, well, yeah. certainly he dies, but he's, he, his sons are slaughtered in front of him, um, and he is blinded and c- kept as a prize. He is 
put in, he's blinded, he's kept alive, um, he's brought to Babel. First his sons are killed, he is not killed, he's made to watch the death of his sons, he is blinded, he is tied up in handcuffs and brought to Babel as a prize to display in the palace of the king of Babel. And of course this imagery, I think, recalls the image of the last, or I think the, I think the last Jew, or the last Jewish fighter, to have, to have suffered a similar fate in Tanakh, to have been blinded, to have been tied up and kept as a prize in a ruler's palace, and that is the imagery of Shimshon. And if we look at Shimshon, I brought the last psukim of Shimshon in, in the little box on the, on the sheet there, from Shoftim Perak Tetzayin. Um, you have the image of Shimshon taken down to Aza, imprisoned in handcuffs, grinding in the, in the prison house, Finally, his hair begins to grow. The, the Philistines gather for a, uh, a sacrifice to their god in order to celebrate this victory over Shimshon. Um, and they are cheering over the death of Shimshon. And of course, what does Shimshon do at that point? Right. And to a certain extent, Shimshon is really the image for the heroic die, the heroic death in Tanakh. There is very, there are very few other... I mean, with the possible exception of Shaul, Shimshon and Shaul remain as these sort of tragic, heroic uh, people who fight against all odds and die and are, consi- and are yet considered glorious. I had an interesting conversation with a rabbinic scholar last week, um, which I dis- discussed these issues with him, and he said, what is the glory in dying? The glory isn't being able to get up tomorrow morning and put on film. Um, if you have to surrender, then you have to surrender. And yet the stories of Shimshon and the story of Shaul do to some extent give in Tanakh a certain measure of bravery to those who fight against all odds um, and continue the fight for Jewish independence to the very last. Now the figure of Shimshon has that measure of sort of heroism more than t- tragedy because Shimshon, what's the last sentence we're told about Shimshon? But he accomplishes something. Right? He, kill, he kills more people in his death than he does in his life. Yet, Tzidkiyahu is given a somewhat more muted treatment. Tzidkiyahu is not here credited with any accomplishment in his death. Tzidkiyahu is being told that he is, um, is um, brought, we're told that Tzidkiyahu is brought to be a ruler's prize, we're told that he's blinded, and to a certain extent there's a contrast with Shimshon. Because while they both fight to the very last, and they both battle all the way, and they both wind up as the ruler's prize, as a blind ruler prize of the foreign ruler, Shimshon does accomplish something. And Shimshon really becomes more of a hero than a tragedy. And the comparison, I think, of Tzidkiyahu with Shimshon is meant to show how little Tzidkiyahu accomplished. That Tzidkiyahu, for all of his holding out, really did not accomplish what a tragic hero could accomplish. In summary... We begin by Tzidkiyahu as a disobedient figure, as someone who refuses the orders of the Navi, who um, is a stooge of the Babylonians, who therefore feels he needs to fight against the Babylonians. We see the portrayal from the Lachish letters of the resistance as something that is continuing to fight out against all odds, and a certain sense of heroism emerges. And yet Tanakh really does deny Tzidkiyahu that level of heroism. It does it because it, um, first of all, portrays him as someone who's unwilling to stand to his convictions. He realizes that he ought to surrender, and he refuses to do it out of cowardice. I'm scared, he says, of the Jews, that the Jews will torture me. 
He winds up, of course, being tortured by the Babylonians. He is, he is portrayed in a way that's similar to Shimshon, not in order to say he's on the level of Shimshon, but in order to contrast him with Shimshon. Shimshon accomplishes something in his death, Tzidkiyahu accomplishes nothing in his death. The overarching message here, I think, is that Tzidkiyahu is aware of the prophet's injunctions. Tzidkiyahu believes the prophet. Tzidkiyahu is ultimately convinced the prophet is right that God has become the enemy of the Jewish people, and to a certain extent, Tzidkiyahu has to range himself with God against Jerusalem. And that's a very, very difficult thing for a king to do, even when given a prophetic injunction to do so, to fight with God against Jerusalem. And it's, it's, it's an even more difficult challenge than the challenge that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai faces in the, in the story in the Gemara, Yochanan ben Zakkai sees Jerusalem as already surrendered. He doesn't have to make the decision to surrender, to surrender the city. He says, let me go and, and, and go to Yavne. But here Tzidkiyahu is asked to surrender Jerusalem. And to, that's a decision he's not willing to make. But he emerges more tragic than heroic for the, because of the motives for which he makes that decision. It's not because he says, I believe we have a chance of winning. It's not because he says, like Hoshayahu at Maresha, I am going to continue to fight against all odds. It's because of his cowardice, as reflected in Perak Lamed Chet, Pasuk Yutet, Ani doeg et ha-Yehudim asher naflu el ha-Kazdim, v'an yitnu oti bi-adam v'italuvi. I am scared to, that I be given into the hands of the Jews and that they torture me. He is unwilling to allow himself to be tortured by those who is, whom he previously, were previously his subjects. It's a certain, a certain measure of ego that refuses to allow him to make that, that final sacrifice. And so Tzidkiyahu emerges as someone who could have been a sort of tragic hero by surrendering the city, someone who refuses to make that step, and who ends up being portrayed as Shimshon, but without the glory of Shimshon, because he ultimately accomplishes nothing. Um, I think it's a fascinating portrayal. It's a very painful portrayal. It's a very difficult portrayal. Um, it implies that there are times when God fights against Jerusalem and God fights against Jewish independence. And the message of the prophet here is that one has an obligation to be on the side of God rather than on the side of Jewish independence. Uh, but it is, I think, for, for, for all the fact that it's difficult and it's complex and it's tragic and it's painful, it is a message that Sefer Yirmiyahu sees as central to give to us about the fate of Yehuda in 586. Okay. Uh, I'm happy to take questions, arguments, and complaints now. Please. Uh, I think the reason that there's no comparison with Shimshon is not just that Shimshon accomplishes something, but that Shimshon is not doing it against the advice of the um, I think the point is well taken. That's true. That's certainly the way that Sefer Miao portrays it. Um, nevertheless, the idea is that Shimshon, remember that Shimshon is told at the very beginning that he's going to save the Jews from the Philistines. So there is a certain prophetic element there. Okay, let me let's do like this. Anyone who wants to leave now, let's leave, and, we'll, and then we'll have two minutes for questions after that. Thank you very much.